The Free For All Roundtable. Round two. On round two, Deb Hutton is here, former advisor to two Ontario premiers, uh, teacher Michelle Morrow and uh, People's Voice Award winner Bob Richardson is also here, senior counsel at National Public Relations. And Bob, you and I were at the same party on Saturday and we didn't even get to talk. It was that crazy. It was uh, it was great. Uh, welcome to TIFF uh, in uh, in Toronto. It was a uh, it was a lot of fun. Uh, glad to see you there. Okay. Well, we'll have to catch up another time. But let's talk politics. Let's talk Pierre Polyev, and let's talk the Conservative Convention. Uh, let me start with you, Bob Richardson, on this one. Um, there are many things we can talk about as we unpack that convention. One of them being that there were some socially conservative things uh, enacted by the party members, but. The leader is not bound by those. And then there was an hour-long speech that Pierre Polyev gave, which I thought was very impressive, but 15 minutes too long. Yeah, look, uh, I, 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 I think that convention probably was close to a 10 out of 10 in terms of attendance, show, speech, uh, energy, enthusiasm, all those things. Uh, they did a pretty good job getting all that going. Uh their problem is they're 18 months from an election. Uh, it's tough to keep that momentum going for a period of time. But uh, full marks uh, full marks to them for putting on a good show. It did probably show that there is some cleavage on social uh, conservative issues where they are certainly to the right of where the most uh, most Canadians are, uh, particularly Canadians in major urban areas, which is exactly where they have to win seats. Deb Hutton, your thoughts. I thought that, uh, like I said, Pierre Polyev gave a very effective speech and also the formatting of it, having him on a circular stage with invisible teleprompters uh, worked to his advantage. Yeah, listen, I am going to agree with my liberal friend uh, with everything he said except one thing, which is I think the social conservatives are not just right of where Canadians are, but where many conservatives are. And so I, I do believe and hope that we will see uh, Polyev just leave that alone and talk about those things that unite us, which has been my rallying cry, both federally and provincially for a long time. Uh, his speech was like to hold an audience for an hour, even an audience of your own folks is really astounding. I mean, I think I used to aim for writing speeches that were 20 minutes, knowing that the ad libs and the applause would take you well past the half hour. And that's as long as people wanted to listen. But he held everyone's attention, the media, the people in the room, by all accounts. And and so I think he just did a tremendous job. The trick for them was to show that they are not only uh, they have a leader in waiting to be prime minister, but they're a party ready to govern. And I believe they did that absolutely this weekend. Michelle Morrow, did you see a prime minister in waiting? I was really impressed, to be honest. Um, I do agree the speech was way too long. <laughs> Even when you're preaching to the choir, the choir can get a little bit bored. So I wish that someone had said maybe we should cut this down because I know I'm watching it for, for work and for just find out what's happening with politics. And even I was like, I'm having, I'm stopped taking notes because I can't even keep up. Um, but I do believe it, it. The good thing about that long of a speech is it showed that he could hold the crowd and he was able to keep it moving and it didn't feel like it was rambling. He felt like he had good points. So I have to give him props for that. But I wish someone had realized that it was way too long. Our friend Colin DeMello got his hands on something that I don't know if necessarily it's the Holy Grail, but 
newspaper outlets, for example, have been and and broadcast outlets have been seeking this for years. They're the so-called mandate letters, and I'll start with you, Deb, because you probably understand this file better than most. Mandate letters are effectively um, a, a letter from the prime minister or the premier saying, "Here are your marching orders as a cabinet minister," and. I don't see a heck of a lot in this, aside from a lot of guidance about how everyone's supposed to behave themselves. Yeah. Um, so, you know, Mike Harris really was the architect of these mandate letters in in his early mandate to be able to say uh, very deliberately and very clearly, here's what I expect of you in this portfolio, Minister A, B or C. And part of the reason for that wasn't just direction. But it was to hold your ministers accountable, both internally and externally. And so they're a tremendous thing. And I know people think, well, you know, this is the public sector and we pay your bills and your salaries and all those things. And so everything should be public. I think that's a crock. And, and I really I understand where the media comes from on this. But you're no longer going to get direction if those things are in the public domain. And it's not because there's anything particularly devious or or diabolical in these letters, but it does, it should at least talk about, for example, caucus engagement, and it should talk about priorities as it relates to different parts of the province and, and political priorities, which, you know, you're naive if you think politics doesn't come into governing. So I think it's unfortunate that these letters have been put out there. I think it's unfortunate that we're going as far as the Supreme Court to, to give uh, premiers and prime ministers the right to do this. And I think it's a mistake overall. The the uh, Colin and others, Colin Tabello and others are talking about how this says, well, we were going to be for the people and hold ministers accountable. Well, yeah, of course it says that. And of course, Doug Ford should continue on that. And if he's lost his way, then it's time to rein it back. Okay, Uh, Michelle Morrow, I guess the lack of flash in these mandate letters is kind of disappointing because, you know, nowhere in them does it say things like you will sell out the green belt. Yeah, I'm not actually sure what the big gotcha moment is with this. I actually assumed that mandates letters had been happening since the dawn of politics. I assumed that most uh, premiers or prime ministers or leaders would have set out a list of their expectations. Um, and I reading it, I didn't see anything uh, that upsetting. I, I like the way he laid things out. And even if the government now has, he, even if Doug Ford has made changes or made choices that may not He'd been reflecting those mandate letters. He's been in power for, oh gosh, I feel as though I should know how many years now, but I'm not sure. Um, but I feel like politicians change over time. And just because he had a mandate letter which said we were for the people and now he's done something which is technically not for the people, I, I'm not upset about these mandate letters. I don't know what the big deal is with them, to be honest. Yeah, and it's five and a half years, I think, that uh, Doug Ford has been in power and worth noting. Yes. Uh, and I'm Thank you. To, okay, I want to pivot to something different because mandate letters is a bit pointy-headed. Uh, but worth noting, yeah. these are the mandate letters from 2018. It's not even in the current iteration of the cabinet. Um, let's move on to Doug Ford, again, weighing in on gender identity in schools. And This is going to be argued at multiple levels of court, Bob Richardson, and I get both sides of the argument. But at the same time, I don't know why Doug Ford's getting involved. This is all about the fact that if a kid shows up at school and says, you know, uh, I want to be called by this name or referred to in that gender, that the teacher doesn't necessarily have to pick up a phone and call the parents and say, do you know? Yeah, look, I, 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 I do question why this is at the top of the list politically at the moment. This is 0.03% of the population. 
So that means it's not affecting 99.97% of the population. So I think it's important to put this in a proper context right off the, uh, off the top. I think this is an issue that needs some nuance. It needs calm, experienced, rational folks dealing with it. I think it's an issue that needs a case-by-case basis. I don't think a sweeping law, one way or the other, by the way, is the answer is the answer on this question. So uh, I would just turn down, I think it's important for politicians to turn down the volume on this. Think, uh, think of the kids think of the kids' safety, and put that priority number one. Michelle Morrow, I know people will argue, and that's what Doug Ford is saying, this is about parental rights. Who's running your kid's life, the parents or the teachers? But I can also tell you from having spent time with people in Toronto youth shelters, one of the principal drivers of kids finding themselves homeless is their parents find out they're gay and they kick them out. Yeah, it's um, yeah, it's really scary to think that uh, that. I'm finding I'm really struggling with my words here because I don't I do I want to know what's happening in my children's lives. Absolutely. But at the same time, if they need to work up to telling me something, I really appreciate that they feel comfortable talking to a teacher. I know I've had students of my own who we've maybe spent a lesson or two talking about something that's going on in their life. And I feel really lucky and privileged that um, they feel comfortable talking to me. And if it was a point where I thought they were going to harm themselves or harm something else, I would definitely go to the parent. I hope the parent knows that. But I also want to press my student. that I I don't want to ruin that relationship with my student that they feel comfortable with me, which maybe talking to me would then allow them to get points so that they can talk to their parents. I really do feel like talking to a teacher is a stepping stone towards building up the courage to talk to their parents. Because as much as kids are like, I hate my parents, they really love them and they really value what they think of them. Otherwise, they wouldn't be so worried about it. It's an interesting angle, especially spoken as a teacher. Deb, last word on this one. So I agree with everything Bob said. We need to to be very thoughtful about our position. Here is my challenge with it, though. The largest school board in this province, Toronto District School Board, and thankfully my children are not in that board, has said as a matter of principle, as a matter of policy, if a child says, I want to be called something else, I want to change my pronoun, and that child is any age and says, but please don't tell my parents, the school board's policy is they won't. And I just think that is wrong. I am absolutely open to that being the policy at 16 and above, but below the age of 16, I think parents should be informed. And if there is true cause for concern to both Michelle and Bob's point, yours as well, John, then we have ways to deal with that just as we do with other forms of abuse and teachers have processes they can follow. But the notion that carte blanche, if my eight-year-old, my nine-year-old, my six-year-old wants to change their name and or pronoun and they don't have to tell parents, and in fact, if the kid says don't, they won't, I think is a fundamentally flawed policy. The Federation president in Spain for their uh, soccer federation has resigned after about three weeks of outrage. He kissed one of the players on the lips. She didn't like it. He said, what's it to you? Um, Bob, actually, I'll come to you on this one because, of course, you're associated with Soccer Canada. Uh, Your thoughts? Uh, First of all, this guy is clearly a turkey just uh, to begin with, which uh, did not uh, make the situation uh, any better. His actions were inappropriate. Uh, I will say one thing at the moment, and I'm not sure how to get out of it. It is a toxic environment in women's soccer in Canada, in the United States, in Spain, in France. 
So I think it's time for federations, of which I've been a member of, uh, to sit down and think about what it is that they're doing. But I also think that it's time for players to sit down and think about what they're doing. I think it's time for us to restructure the relationship because incidents like this going on is not helpful to the sport. Thank you all. We're out of time, but great to have you. Bob Richardson, Deb Hutton, and Michelle Morrow. Catch the roundtable. Round one at 745. Round two at 845. Weekday mornings on More in the Morning. News Talk 1010 Toronto.